0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. Now, as of this morning, we were still the intergalactic choice for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, here at this curious Nexus Point, we explore the unusual, the strange, the offbeat, the bizarre, the intriguing, the interesting, the invigorating, the quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the things in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, guys, I'm going to front load this with a little self-promotion because we got a lot to get to today. Subscribe to the podcast if this is your first time at iTunes. Fascinating Nouns is the name to look under. Of course, you can find all my episodes for free on fascinatingnouns.com. And I suggest that you check out my other podcast, The Stell Experience, chronicling one man's journey of discovery in the interesting town of Stell, Illinois. Learn all about it there. At Daniel J. Glenn is my Twitter handle, You can also like Facebook, get all the updates, Pinterest account, all the wonderful photos that I talk about, and a YouTube account. Crazy videos that I've got that kind of are supplemental material for all the interviews that I do, which I rely heavily on, and this interview with Adam Neediff. I'm going to post a lot of cool little videos about this. Adam is a local game show expert and historian and aficionado, to be perfectly honest, Great stuff. Wrote a book called Quizmaster, The Life and Times, Fun and Games of Bill Cullen. It's a big book. I'm not going to lie. But it is a great book. Very smooth read. Learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. And the game shows are, are an amazing little American American invention. Let me give you a quick little story to introduce Adam. So I have a quite a board game collection myself. This is No Secrets, well documented. And on that shelf, I've got an ancient copy of Jeopardy, the board game, 9th edition. Inherited that from my grandmother. Sat in her shelf for about 30 years. I think we attempted to play it maybe two or three times. Adam walks in. This guy's no slouch in board games himself. Has lots of rare, unusual, strange board games. One of his main collections are game show-based board games, and he has quite the Jeopardy collection. I have the ninth edition. I think he has 1 through 30, or so I thought. Walks in, looks at my shelf, compliments my collection. I say, thank you, Adam. He says, oh... What do I see there? Is that Jeopardy the ninth edition? I don't have that one. And he had a little hunger in his voice, a little little, little thing going on, a little twang, and I wondered, hey, i got to check this guy's pockets when he walks out of here. I'm just saying. Anyway, Adam, enough of that crap. Let's talk game shows. Thank you so much for being here today, man. I'm honored to be here. Well, you know, it's funny. I was wanted to put together an episode about game shows. Now, I watched a ton when I was a kid, but I don't know a lot about them. And... You know, you you were given to me as the expert, so I hope I hope you fulfill <laughs> that role. And I remember sitting down, and you gave me your book, which is uh, called Quizmaster, The Life and Time, Fun and Games of Bill Cullen, correct? Yep. Right. Look at that right off the top. Uh-huh. I'm not even looking at the book. Good job. I'm not even looking at the book. <laughs> and I, I remember, I'm not going to lie to you, this is a show about honesty. Adam. I remember mm-hmm. looking at the book and looking at the last page, and it was 517 pages, and I thought, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and I was, I was dreading the book. And then I opened it up and I was like, yeah, I'll read the first page and last page and kind of like work my way through it, make it up as I go. <laughs> and uh, I, I read it and I'm, I'm not long. I don't hmm. blow smoke. Really good book, man. Thank you. You did a, an incredible job because number one, the book is a really easy read. I mean, it just goes down. Number two, it's about a guy I've never heard of in my entire life, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and number three, he's kind of a boring guy as a human being. Yeah. His accomplishments are really impressive, mm-hmm. especially given you know, how he started out. But yeah, I was, I was really kind of blown away with the book. And so I had kind of worked in questions about, you know, game shows and everything, which we'll get to. Yeah. But I'd like, really like to talk about Bill Cullen because I think he's a guy that most people don't even really know about or have heard about or anything like that. Right. You know? Um, so Bill Cullen, in a, why don't you – this is a show about you. Why don't you okay. do a little bit of talking? Uh, so tell me a little bit about Bill Cullen, just in brief.
1: Okay. Well, here's the thumbnail sketch of the book. Um, Bill Cullen uh, was born in Pittsburgh in 1920. And he's sort of a pioneer broadcaster, as it were. He, um, he contracted polio as an infant, which has nothing to do with broadcasting, but you'll see why it becomes remarkable here in a moment. Um, <clears throat> doctors predicted early on that he would never walk. He did wind up walking, not only walked, but attained a pilot's license before he was out of high school. And then after he graduated high school, he got into radio and was a success as a radio DJ when he was only 19 years old made his way to New York when he was in his early 20s, and immediately got a job with CBS. And by the 1950s, he had already rounded up a very prolific resume as a game show host. And television took over the world in the late 1940s and early 1950s, and Bill was right there hosting game shows. And even at that stage in his life, he anticipated that he would never really be a well-known television personality because the polio had a lasting effect on him. Uh, He couldn't walk properly. He walked with a limp because his legs uh, grew unevenly. Um, So he always described himself as a guy who, number one, didn't have the look, and number two, didn't look quite right when he walked. Uh, And despite that, he went on to host more game shows than anybody else in the history of game shows. He hosted a total of 40 game shows during his life, uh, spanning 1946 to 1986. And what was so amazing about that was many of them were hit shows and many of them had overlapping runs. For a large chunk of his career in the 1970s, he was on the air 11 times a week with different game shows. During the summer of 1976, he was on the air a total of 22 times in one week with different game shows. So this was a guy who was in demand quite a bit during his career. And it just had to do with the fact that, number one, he was very, very good at what he did. Uh, He was very, very professional. He was very, very accomplished. He was very entertaining uh, as a talker and as an MC. And people just gravitated towards him and people loved working with him. The consensus among the people that he worked with was he was just the nicest guy to work with and the easiest to get along with of all the television personalities out there. And because of that, he was able to build up an amazing career despite the fact that he had this setback that you would think would prevent anyone from really making it in show business.
0: Well, it, it's it is pretty amazing. Is the twenty two times a week? Is that a record?
1: I'm I would. It pretty much has to be a record. I can't imagine anybody else that would come close. Especially you know now when game shows aren't really what they were at that time. Uh, I don't really see how anybody else can pull that off.
0: Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if there's. And I don't even know about game shows, but I mean, I wonder if there's any personality who's been on you know, even like the president during war or yeah. something or anything like that. Well, he started out in radio, not the president, but Bill Cohen Correct. started out in radio, yeah. which that makes sense to hide the limp and, uh, cause he kind of, what really set him apart was his, um, his personality. Mm-hmm. Like his, the, the wit and the, you know, his, his ability to, to talk and kind of get everyone to listen to him and, and kind of create a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. really. And I think that's what was fostered on radio, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, Standard game show MC in that era was sort of the stereotype was uh, Burt Parks, who was the host of the Miss America pageant for many years and he also hosted a lot of game shows. But Burt Parks was the kind of guy who would run across the stage and he would say, You're a winner! And he, you know, he had a hundred tooth smile. Uh, and then along came Bill Cullen, who was very, very laid back and spoke to contestants in a casual tone and very, very conversational. And, um,. I have a friend who's also a big fan of Bill Cullen. His name is Matt Ottinger. He's in Michigan and he helped me a lot with this book. Uh, but Nick. Matt had a great way to describe the way that Bill hosted a show, which was driving a car with one hand on the steering wheel and leaning back in the seat. That was the way that Bill hosted shows. He's riding dirty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so very, very relaxed and very, very real. The audience connected to him just because he seemed like a normal guy. He was just, he was your neighbor. He was the guy who lived across the street, he was your friendly uncle.
0: Well, and you know what what, um, what, kind of struck me about the book, you know, just to go back to the book itself, is I really saw what you did when I was finished with the book, and because he was so prolific, because he did so many shows and his decades spanned so long, what you told was a history of game shows through the eyes of Bill Cullen, who's basically Bill Cullen is the through line for the history of game shows, because it goes from how they started on radio, and then panel shows. And panel shows were really popular and through the '50s, mm-hmm. and then it started moving into. The, I think The Price is Right was a big switch into game shows with large prizes and large money, mm-hmm. money and prizes, because there were money wasn't really a big deal back in the '50s. So let's talk about let's talk about the '50s types of game shows. What mm-hmm. was popular? What was going on? And then you know how it changed.
1: The 1950s game shows. Number one, uh, panel shows. You talk about a lot. Um, there were a bunch of them on the air. There were basically a bunch of different versions of 20 questions on the air, including a TV version of 20 questions. Mm. Um, but there were shows on the air like What's My Line and I've Got a Secret. And one of the the show that Bill did was I've Got a Secret. He was a regular panelist on that. And every now and then— Now I want to make
0: a point. He wasn't the host. He was a panelist. He was a
1: panelist. Yeah, Gary Moore was the host, and Bill was one of the four celebrity panelists that sat in on the show every week. And every now and then on Reddit or some site like that— uh, a link will pop up of a really interesting video from uh, the 1950s. I've got a secret, where the contestant is the last surviving witness to Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Oh right, yeah. And it's a it's a fascinating clip. But one of the things that always kind of takes people back, and you'll see this on the on the uh, comments whenever this video clip gets posted, is they can't believe that the grand prize is eighty dollars. <laughs> well, what's interesting about it yeah. is. It,
0: it, no, it's, and, you, and you mean that so much, not. Yeah. I can't believe it's only $80. <laughs> yeah.
1: What's interesting about it was, it wasn't that much money back then, but that was the standard thing for uh, the panel shows. The top prize on What's My Line was $50. Uh, the top prize on 20 Question was a kit of uh, in shaving lotions and razors. So. <laughs> That's what you had to deal with on old game shows. There Product was a, place, another right. panel show, Down You Go, where the top prize was $25.
0: Now, I want to make a quick and, point here. So, so the money, the way it worked, was that for every question the panelists got wrong, the contestant got more money, right? Right, yeah. or you
1: had so long to solve it, and if you failed to solve it in your time period, the contestant got money. Uh, what people don't understand was on all these old panel shows in the 1950s, the money was only important in as far as keeping track of the progress of the game. It wasn't so much, hey, you have a chance at winning $50. The point of the prize was when the game reaches $50, we're done. Right. Um, So that's what the early game shows were. There were also shows like uh, Truth or Consequences and Beat the Clock, which were stunts, you know, you throw pies at each other or whatever, and you win a prize (laughs) for that. And then there were... Uh, question and answer shows that really didn't become prolific until the $64,000 question in the 1950s, uh, in 1955, and that was the one that sort of altered what game shows became and not necessarily for the better because it was one of the fixed quiz shows and the success of the $64,000 question led to other fixed quiz shows, um... Now, how did that scandal
0: work? Not to move on, but
1: since you okay. just... Let's get it organically.
0: So this this was a big deal for game shows because uh, there was a scandal where it was fixed. People knew the answers. People yeah. were
1: racking up tons of money. Mm-hmm. How did that work? Uh, well, here's how it worked. It, to some degree, uh, there were a couple of game shows that had fixed their shows just because they wanted more interesting contestants to win and less interesting contestants to lose. There was a show called Name That Tune in the early 1950s that was lightly fixed as far as... Lightly fixed? If if there was a contestant that the producer liked uh, during the bonus round, and if you won the bonus round, you got to come back and play again, and during the bonus round, the producer would sort of tiptoe on stage and whisper the answers if he liked the contestant. (laughs) So it wasn't sophisticated, and you know it wasn't exactly an elaborate system, but it was just, I like this person, I want to make sure they stay on the air. They really got serious about rigging quiz shows wow. with the $64,000 question, and they got very sophisticated about the way that they rigged the shows, uh, which was when you tried out for the $64,000 question, and the premise of the show was all of your questions were on your area of expertise. When you tried out for the show, mm. you said, I know a lot about this subject, and all of your questions would come from that subject, and they would prepare a 200-question test and have you take this test, and it covered just all different areas of this uh, of this subject matter. And if they liked you, they kept track of what you knew and what you didn't know. And if they liked you, they would only ask you questions that you did know.
0: Like softball. That's what right, softball is
1: yeah. Uh, there was a contestant, for example, named Gino Prato, whose field of expertise was opera. But when they did the test, they found out that he really only knew Italian operas. Uh, he didn't know anything about French operas or operas from any other country. So because they liked him and because the audience responded well to him and because he was good for ratings, they kept giving him questions about Italian operas. If they had wanted to trip him up, for example, they didn't necessarily have to rig the show with his knowledge. All they would have to do was ask him a question about a German opera or an English opera or something like that. Um, So that was one of the methods of rigging. Uh, The other one... There were shows like uh, 21, which was the source of the movie quiz show, and shows like Dotto, where the shows were just scripted beginning to end. The contestants were pulled aside and just told, you know, play ball and you'll get this much. It, the contestants who were asked to take a dive might get a little money under the table just for going along with it and uh, taking a dive. But every question and every answer was completely mapped out, and they were told which categories to choose and what answers to give. So it's like
0: a reality show, in yeah. a sense, where like everything's scripted, although oh, it's yeah. pretending not to be.
1: Right, yeah. And... Um, you know, it was good for a while, but the uh, the problem ultimately was they were rigging every contestant, and w- what's funny is, in the research for the books that I've uh, written so far, one of the things that I found was a producer on the $64,000 question who said that he was just adamantly against rigging every game, and he said the funny thing was it didn't have anything to do with morals or ethics. He said, I was against rigging every game because, you know, we had four contestants a week. We did 52 shows a year, and even if you tell them not to tell anybody, these people do have spouses. They do have friends at the bar. They're going to mention it to those people. Right. So you got to figure you're letting 20 people know every week that it's rigged, and if you're letting people uh, 20 people a week know that the show is rigged, eventually that's going to get out. Um, like
0: what happened with Jerry Springer.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so eventually the uh, the House of Cards did tumble. They wound up with concrete evidence that the show that the shows had been rigged because of uh, contestants. Uh, on Dotto and contestants on 21 providing sort of concrete evidence of what was going on um, and the interesting thing was up until that happened there was no law in the books that said that you couldn't rig a quiz show it hadn't occurred to lawmakers that anybody might do it mm. but uh, after that a lot of measures went into place a lot of laws have gone into place um, I happen to know at CBS Studio 33 where they do The Price is Right there's actually a list of rules kind of taped up and it's straight out of the law books what you can do and what you can't do during a game show and i'll tell you from my own experience as a contestant on a game show when i had to duck out to use the restroom at one point during the taping I had to notify somebody. I had to have that person follow me to the restroom. The person opened the restroom door, stuck her head inside, looked around and made sure there was nobody else in the restroom, and then gave me permission to go inside once she determined that there was nobody else in there. And
0: when you said stuck your head in, I thought you meant the stall. I was like, jeez. <laughs> because like, then you said she, and I was like, where is this going? Uh, what show were you? I was on?
1: a contestant on uh, Trivial Pursuit America Plays. I was a contestant on uh, Catch-21, and I was a contestant on Who's Still Standing.
0: I think my roommate was a contestant on Catch-21. What is that a card game? Where you, yeah. Who, who uh, hosted it?
1: Blackjack with trivia questions. Alfonso Ribeiro.
0: <laughs> yep, you got it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, he was on that show. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, so, now, so the scandal happened. There was also a thing, um, this might be jumping ahead, but I think it, it kind of fits. as the game press your luck? Yeah, and so this started out, basically the game show is this rotating board, and you press a button, it stops the board, and it's supposed to be random. Mm-hmm. But a guy figured out the pattern. Yeah. It's a little bit different than, than, than a scandal, but, or different than, than rigging it, but it was kind of a scandal. Wasn't it, it? It,
1: it is a fascinating story. It's, uh, the man's name was Michael Larson. And uh, he was a contestant on Press Your Luck. And the interesting thing is, the, the host, Peter Kamarkin, made this point. He said, Press Your Luck is the most famous game show of all time that nobody remembers the name of. So for anybody true. listening to this who is wondering what Press Your Luck was, Michael Larson was a contestant on Big Bucks, No Whammies. So anytime I say <laughs> Press Your Luck, just say that to yourself. He was a contestant on Big Bucks, No Whammies. That was the show he was on. That's true. Yeah. Uh... Um but anyway, the light flashes around the board. There are 18 squares with money mounts and the whammies, which take away your money. And at the very beginning of the series... And they look this like the Noid,
0: right? The whammies. Right, you got it, yeah. yeah.
1: And at the very beginning of the series, you have to keep in mind, this was 1983 when the show went on the air. Computer technology then was not what it was that now. They had a very limited function computer system that had five patterns programmed into it for the way that the light would flash around the board. And... To get something that could randomize it or that would let them program more patterns of lights flashing, it would cost CBS an extra $800. Hmm. And CBS determined that was an unnecessary expense, so they declined that. Big mistake. Um, So the lights flashed around in one of these five pre-programmed patterns. The man's name was Michael Larson, and he was watching TV because he was going through a long spell of unemployment. And as I understand it, he actually had five TVs running at the same time on every channel in his living room just because he was so obsessed with finding some way to make a buck while he was unemployed. And he watched Press Your Luck, and he realized that the light wasn't going around randomly. And he figured out what the pattern was, and he bought a bus ticket from—I think he was living in Minnesota—bought a bus ticket from Minnesota to Los Angeles for the sole purpose of auditioning for Press Your Luck got on the show, and took them for $110,000.
0: Now, what was the top prize before that time?
1: There was no there was no top prize. The, the way that the game was structured, it just kept going until there was a winner. I would say, on average, a good day on Press Your Luck was probably about $7,500. Okay. <laughs> and he managed to win $110,000 in a single game, and there was actually discussion of not airing the show uh, just because it made CBS look bad that somebody figured out that they had a system in place and figured out how to break the system. And there was actually an attempt to deny him of the winnings. (laughs) That's what I... I heard that he... Did did he get the money? He did get the money because they went through it and they absolutely nitpicked all the paperwork because you do have to fill out... It's kind of like getting hired for a job Mm. or applying for a job when you're a contestant on a game show. There's paperwork to fill out and they looked for every discrepancy that they could possibly nitpick and they determined that he hadn't broken any rules and... It's kind of the same thing at a casino in Vegas, if you count cards, you'll win the money, but they'll ask you to leave, but you still have the money. Mm -hmm. It was the same thing here. It was, you know, they wanted to deny him the money, but how do you punish somebody for paying attention? Right. That was the only crime that he committed. He was paying too much attention to the show, so they realized they couldn't punish that. And they were stuck. They were on the hook and had to pay him 110000
0: And I imagine they put another eight hundred into Oh, yeah, yeah. They
1: absolutely, yeah. They installed the new uh, computer system. And they said, that, a couple of production staffers said, the funny thing was, for about a couple of months after that show aired, you could spot other contestants who had done the same thing. Because whenever one of those original five patterns came up, they were on top of it and they would get the big money square. And then they were totally lost when the other patterns came up. Um... So basically, Michael Larson was the first one to beat the system. But other people had figured it out by then. That's pretty incredible. I, I don't under
0: yeah I didn't, never understood. I thought they didn't give them the money. I obviously didn't pay too close to <laughs> enough attention to the, the the story. But yeah, I mean like how do you punish someone for really working hard, studying a system, and then breaking it? Yeah. I mean I, I really thought you counted cards and you got your hands broken by the mafia. <laughs> but is that not true?
1: Well, no. on the on the books, there have been attempts over the years. Uh, as I understand this in Las Vegas, there have been attempts to, you know, make card counting and that kind of thing illegal. And basically the response is, you know, you can't really enforce a law that says you're not allowed to pay attention. You're right. That's hard to do. But then the they other can, law, They can scare you into not doing it. Yeah, they it. can scare—and basically there's also a law in the books that says casinos do not need to provide a reason for kicking you out. They can ask anyone to leave for any reason. So those are the kinds of—those mm-hmm. two rules kind of dovetail together. Okay, they can't enforce anything about card counting, but if they see you counting cards, they can tell you to get out. Right. So, Yeah.
0: Um, all right. So let's go back to so the scandal in the 50s. So how, how did this affect future game shows? I mean, besides ruining people's careers?
1: Well, there were the short term effects, which was for about 15 years after the scandals hit. Game shows were played for very low stakes in the 1960s. For example, Password, a contestant on Password could not possibly do better than $700. That was absolutely the best you could do playing a game of Password. In the long-term effects, it did affect uh, the way that game shows were conducted backstage. I just told you the story uh, about uh, you know needing a witness when I went to the bathroom.
0: Right.
1: Uh, so there was that, there were those kinds of effects. There were also effects on the ways that uh, game shows had to uh, conduct uh, the way they dealt with prize uh, manufacturers. I can tell you, for example, when I worked at The Price Is Right. There was actually a law on the books that said we were not allowed to keep prizes. So at the end of the season, anything that we had that the sponsor didn't want back, we had to give to charity. Oh, I mean, no it, w- it wasn't. We had to write the sponsor and say, you know, here's this prize. It wasn't claimed. Do you want it back? And if the sponsor said, yeah, go ahead and send it back, okay, fine. But if the sponsor said, no, 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 because we've made this new model and now that's the old model and we don't want that anymore – It wasn't like, hey, a free soda fountain, great. Who's going to take this home? Uh, It was you had to get rid of it. So that's part of it because anything that you keep would be – it would constitute a kickback essentially. So those kinds of ethics, uh, those kinds of laws are now in place. And it's just a very, very well-run machine. And after all these decades, one thing that we can't hammer home enough about game shows, and when I say we, I mean game show fans – What you see is what you get. I mean, there are some things that happen on game shows. Every time there's a notable moment, like somebody solving the puzzle really quickly on Wheel of Fortune, and the video of that goes viral, Uh, you'll hear a comment on a message board about, oh, well, that's probably rigged. It's really not. The measures are are in place. They are very, very serious about it. When you watch a game show, you're watching a 100% legitimate thing. They might reshoot it to get the contestant's reaction. They might reshoot it to get in a, a witty comment from the host that they thought of after the thing had been taped. But the actual playing of the game is 100% real and 100% on the money.
0: Well, it's funny you mention Wheel of Fortune because I just saw a video that went viral about a guy who... I've actually never seen anyone blow a game show quite like this. I think, Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. He won... See, here's, here's the setup. He won just about every big prize on the board. He had it in front of him. All yeah. he had to do was solve the, the puzzle correctly. And... The first one that came up was a 100% filled out already. Yeah, and it was mythological creature Achilles. Yeah, and he said mythological oh mythological hero Achilles, and he said mythological hero uh, Achilles or something like. What <laughs>
1: did, did you see this? Yeah, uh, it was just a very very bizarre journey. He made other mistakes as the, as the game went along. Um,
0: world's fastest dad instead yeah. of man.
1: And it, world's uh, what was the other one? Split set, the, the answer to the puzzle was uh, split. Uh, on the spot decision or something yeah, like yeah. that and it was on the spot deck spin was the answer <laughs> that he gave and despite making three spectacularly odd wrong decisions he somehow managed to win the game anyway
0: oh that i didn't know yeah well this, was, this this might have been a different guy cuz this guy he had like he won the car he he spun around got both pieces of the car mm-hmm. got a million dollars and yeah. blew it all and the thing that the thing that bothered me about that in particular was the, the mythological hero Achilles was up there. Yeah. Okay. It was filled out. There were no... It wasn't a guess. He just read it incorrectly. To me, that felt like, okay, look, we can make fun of him for not knowing that, but why didn't he win? Like, that's not fair. You have to pronounce it correctly?
1: Yeah, you do have to pronounce it correctly.
0: There but by whose a- standards? What if it's tomato or tomato? Like It's... <laughs>
1: Uh, Okay, here's the rule. If it's a proper name, because this has actually happened before exactly the same situation, the solution to the puzzle was Regis Philbin and Kelly Ripa. Uh And they went around in a circle with the three contestants because all three of them mispronounced Ripa. Regis Philbin and Kelly Ripa. Regis Philbin and Kelly Ripa. And they had to do a series of guesses before somebody finally said Ripa because that is her name. Uh, They do accept regional dialects because that's also come up. I want to say... Sometime in the oh, 1980s, there was a puzzle and the solution was uh, grocery store. And the contestants said something like uh, grocery store or grocery store or something like that. They initially ruled incorrectly. They crockery. came back and, They came back <laughs> out of the commercial break and, and said, you know, we did some research and we found out that is a regional pronunciation. In some parts of the country, it is pronounced this way, so we're going to give it to you
0: like roof versus rough and yeah that, mm-hmm. that's so messed up well i'm going to put links to all these uh, on on my youtube channel i'm going to the the wheel of fortune one's easy the abraham lincoln on youtube uh, i'm going to put that up there too cuz these are <laughs> these are pretty amazing things because it's it's amazing to both see people do really well and then m- historically badly and and that that wheel of fortune one i mean i was blown away like someone did not want him to win <laughs> someone was someone did not want him to win um, so, so then, let's move on. So, from the '50s, in the '70s, The Price is Right kind of changed the way things w- worked, right? I mm-hmm. mean, and Bill Cullen did the, I guess, the pilot in the first season or yeah. so, right? And yeah. at this point, it was kind of strange to read in the book that game shows kind of jumped network to network as yeah. they went. I mean, I think there was, um, uh, there was a, a, there were prime time versions of this show. Mm-hmm. That's also the I thing I want to make clear. This, these were all prime time versions. And in the '50s, game shows were done
1: live. Yeah.
0: Right. There was no tape. These Mm -hmm. were all 100 percent live. So when Bill was doing several shows a week, he had to go like place to place to place. And these took four hour, five hour tapings and was doing one in one studio, one in another and like all over the place. Right. He also did one in the East and West Coast. I mean, this
1: was crazy. Uh, He did have a pretty crazy work schedule. He had a radio show in New York City and then on Fridays hosted Place the Face, which taped at CBS Television City in Hollywood and he would board the plane every thursday at midnight and fly across the country plane landed at 6 a.m in los angeles he would go to a hotel in beverly hills and sleep for eight hours then go from the hotel to cbs tape this half hour live game show and then immediately get on the plane and go back to new york to do his radio work again And then during the 1950s, we were talking about I've Got a Secret earlier and The Price is Right. Both of those shows aired on the same night and they were both live. So what he had to do every week was at the end of The Price is Right, which was on from 8.30 to 9 on NBC, he would do The Price is Right live, sign off, and then duck out of the side exit of the theater where they taped it. And there was a cab waiting for him and he would take the cab to another theater for CBS downtown to tape I've Got a Secret at 9.30.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. That is insane. (laughs) Um, But The Price is Right kind of signaled the change into other game shows, from the because the panel shows were really popular. Everyone was doing these shows. And so that kind of switched over, right? And then The Price is Right was only on for a couple years, Mm -hmm. in both primetime and syndicated.
1: It was on the air. uh, When Bill was hosting it, it was on the air for nine years daytime and seven years primetime. And uh, it did kind of signify kind of a changing tide, just in the sense that They were looking for more universal stuff for the contestants to do. Uh, Game shows at that point, like we were talking about, the $64,000 question, uh, areas of uh, specific knowledge, uh, trivia questions, beat the clock, have the stunts. And then along came The Price is Right, where, you know, you have the contestants trying to figure out how much something costs, and that's something you do every day. You encounter prices in the newspaper, you encounter prices at the store you can't go an entire day of your life without encountering a price so they found something really universal and struck on something that everybody could play and I wouldn't say it led directly to it but I'm sure it certainly made it more likely that shows in the future would come along like Password where everything was about words which again you encounter that every day of your life so it's another game that everyone can play so it was kind of that discovery that there are things that you can take from everyday life and turn them into game shows and adapt them and really make it a more universal experience to watch a game show and play along with it.
0: Well, the, what, else, what else struck me about that is The Price is Right, which I think is the longest-running show.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, game show. I should mm-hmm. say, game yeah. show. Uh, it wasn't a big... I mean, the people behind it didn't really believe in it, besides, I think there was one guy... Um, Bob Stewart. Bob Stewart, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, it was his game, he mm-hmm. came up with it, and could barely sell it to anyone, yeah.
1: right? Now, uh, Mark Goodson did not like the idea when Bob Stewart first suggested it to him. Bob Stewart came in with this idea where... We show contestants a prize and they have to guess what it costs. And Mark Goodson couldn't imagine that that it was any good. And they had to bring in uh, several staffers. And Bob, to prove his point, asked Mark to play the game with the staffers. So Mark Goodson began pointing to different things in his office and asking, what do you think I paid for that? And it triggered a series of arguments among his staff about what Mark was paying for things. And so that was what finally made him believe that uh, this might be a viable concept. They sold it to NBC. NBC had them shoot a pilot. NBC disliked the pilot so much that they offered them uh, they offered them a sizable amount of money to just put the game on the shelf and never put it on the air, period. Uh, they stuck their grounds and said, no, 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 let's put this show on the air. NBC said, okay, we're going to put it on the air. But they put it on the air against Arthur Godfrey on CBS, which was the big show on daytime TV, and nothing survived against Arthur Godfrey. So they were burying it against the most popular show on daytime TV, hoping that It would die in three months, and we'd never have to deal with this show again. And then, surprise, surprise, the prices Right right, turned out to be a hit. But yeah, for a show that's been on the air for decades and decades now, nobody had any faith in the idea when it first went on the air.
0: And the pilot was even a catastrophe, right?
1: Yeah. um, Part of the set involved a turntable, and Bill, because of his bad leg, all the game shows that he did were structured so that Bill could always be seated somewhere. And for the pilot, they had him seated on this turntable. And the idea was every time they had a prize, Bill would just get up, take one step off the turntable and said, here's our next prize. And the turntable would spin around, they'd show the prize. And then Bill could sit back down after they had shown the prize. During the taping of the pilot, a stagehand who was in charge of operating the turntable got a cue at the wrong time and spun the turntable while Bill was sitting on it. Bill was wearing a microphone that had a cord attached to it, and it yanked his neck back, and he was rammed against the wall on the turntable. Oh. <laughs> and that looked pretty bad. Um, is there footage of this? I Not that I know of. but There is another pilot that NBC taped, but it's not that one, unfortunately. Uh, but no, it was a pretty big disaster, and the, the score readouts that they had for the contestants also malfunctioned during the pilot, so it was just a very, very bad day. A very, very... Um, a very struck pilot um, and there were different things it, about that show that aren't similar now yeah it like, was a very different show it was like
0: an auction game
1: yeah what what would surprise cont- what would surprise viewers about the prices right then as opposed to now if you watch the prices right now the way the show is structured you know the contestants are called to come on down they're showing the item up for bids everybody places their bid on it winning bidder comes on stage and plays a pricing game there were no pricing games. That part where they're pl- placing the bids on the item up for bids was the entire half hour. Here's a prize. What do you think it costs? Here's our winner. Let's bring out another one. And the bidding strategy is so different because, you know, today you're just trying to guess what it costs. The idea that they had in mind when they first came up with the prices Right was that it was structured like an auction. So you'd be shown a car and you're opening bid for it. And this was when a car was about $1,500 to 2000 dollars But after being shown this car, the first contestant would bid $100, and then the next contestant would say $150, and then the next contestant would say $200, and then the next one would say $250. And and then they would go back and place another round of bids, and then another, and then another, and each bid had to be higher than the last one. So it was like an auction, and the idea was you stopped bidding when it got to about the point where you thought you were at what the car cost. And it's just the most strange counterintuitive thing now when you watch and you think, well, why wouldn't you just bid what you think it costs? Uh, but it was a very, very different beast and very, very interesting to look at and realize what a gigantic hit this show was. It was number one in daytime. It was number eight at one point in primetime, and all it is is just spouting numbers for 30 minutes. That's insane,
0: and and the viewers at home won. Yeah. There was a structure, right?
1: There was a uh, home viewer showcase. Every week, you were shown a series of prizes. Uh, Viewers were encouraged to mail in postcards uh, with their bids on it, And the winning postcard won all the prizes in the showcase. Uh, At the peak of the show's run, when it was on the air in primetime and daytime at the same time, they got 19 million postcards per showcase. Uh, And prior to that... 19 million? 19 million. Wow. And they got an amazing amount of backlash from irate business owners because... What they hadn't anticipated was people would try to research prizes before mailing in their postcards. (laughs) Yeah. So what would happen was a Cadillac would be up for bids in the Home Viewer Showcase. They got an angry phone call from a car salesman somewhere in Poughkeepsie, New York, whose business totally shut down for an entire day because nobody was coming onto his lot to buy cars. They were all coming in to find out what a Cadillac cost. And as soon as they got the price, they would turn around and leave. And his phone rang the entire day, and all it was was people just asking how much of this model of Cadillac cost. And as soon as they got their answer, they hung up. No interest in buying cars. It was just for an entire day. All anyone wanted to know was how much is the car in the showcase.
0: That's insane. Well, And then the show became kind of uh, – there was like – the show kind of moved on to these crazy games where you win stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean that was like – because really that's the big turning point in The Price is Right Because then they shut down and then they restarted in the 70s with that as their main theme, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, The Price is Right. One of the problems that they had early on was keeping it interesting just because, like I said, it was 30 minutes of saying a number, saying a number, saying a number. And Bob Stewart, the producer that we had just talked about, looked for a way to circumvent it and make it more interesting. And one of the things that he tried to do to make it more interesting, and they did this throughout the run, was they tried to offer really odd prizes. The Price is Right. Honest to God offered Ferris wheels, they offered islands, they offered an an igloo as a prize for one episode. They offered really weird prizes just because, you know, a car is a car is a car, and a boat is a boat is a boat, and a trip is a trip is a trip. And they had to figure out ways to make it more interesting. And as time went by, they figured out a way to kind of add some flavor to it was to uh introduce games every now and then the winner of an item up for bids on bill's version would play a game the funny thing was bill's version the the games almost never had anything to do with guessing prices you would be shown three vases and you'd try to guess which one was the two thousand dollar antique and the Mm. other two were cheap fakes uh they would occasionally have a game where the models would hold up a uh, poster that had the names of prizes written on them and then the contestant would have to hold a mirror in front of him and see the mirror image of all the prizes printed, and he won every prize that he was able to identify from the reflection of the printing. <laughs> uh, there was another one where you were shown the latitude and longitude and the recorded temperature for that day of five different locations on Earth, and you won a trip to whichever one you picked.
0: No, um, I'm kidding. That's yeah. a great idea.
1: Yeah, so it, interesting stuff like that. Every now and then they bring in celebrity guests for games. They brought in Tony Bennett for one game, and Tony Bennett's game was he had the winning bidder select different words that he might use in his next song and the contestant's prize <laughs> the contestant's prize for picking out the right words was he won a share of the royalties from the next album that Tony Bennett released royalties so yeah So
0: (laughs) they got juice on it. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Is that still in? I mean, would they still get it today? I mean, I
1: I don't know. But yeah, that was actually you got a share of Tony Bennett's royalties from placing the best bids on the prices. Right. Uh, So they did stuff like that. And the games were really interesting. They were really fascinating. But they had nothing to do with prices. And then when the show went off the air in 1965 and came back in 1972 with Bob Barker, Uh, They decided to come up with a series of pricing games just because they decided that attention spans had been changing for the past few years in America, and bid a number, bid a number, bid a number, bid a number, just was not going to hold the audience's attention in 1972. So they came up with the idea of, okay, every winner gets to play a pricing game for additional prizes, and that's the format they have to this day.
0: And and that the prices right kind of affected modern game shows. I mean, it's really like a, a monumental game show in yeah. a lot of sense.
1: It is. It was a big paradigm shift at the time. It was one of three game shows that premiered on CBS the day that it premiered. Uh, September fourth, nineteen seventy two, was the big milestone day. And the other game shows that premiered that day were uh, Gambit with Wink Martindale and The Joker's Wild with Jack Barry. And there were a couple of things that made these game shows stand out. Number one, they were taped in Los Angeles at CBS Television City. And the thing, the reason that's a big deal is the Television City studios, as their name would imply, they were constructed specifically for television. The game shows on other networks, for the most part, taped in New York City. And in New York City, the television studios were repurposed radio studios. So they, they were small. They weren't the best environment. You had to cut up set pieces and bring them up an elevator and then put them back together again in the studio. Oh, wow. If you wanted to offer a car, there was a game show taped in New York City at Studio 8-H in Rockefeller Center uh, called Sale of the Century. They had to cut the cars in half and bring them up on the elevator and rebuild them in the studio whenever they wanted to offer a car on the show. Uh, so Wait, hold on. They cut the car in half? They had to cut the car in half load it onto the elevator, one half at a time, and then take it to Studio 8H, and the hands would rebuild the car and put it back together in one solid unit.
0: I assume that's not the car they gave away.
1: No, no, not that one specifically, but... Wow. Not, yeah. Um, but, you know, you had this chance to do more elaborate sets, you had a chance to do bigger sets, you had a chance to do a lot more with lights and with the audio at the uh, television studios in Los Angeles. And the music was different they were using synthesized music instead of the big band sound or you know prepackaged stuff and they were a lot livelier they were a lot more energetic and i have a friend who was watching that day and he he had the most interesting observation he said i watched the game shows on cbs and then I changed the channel to Concentration on NBC, and all of a sudden, the show looked really old to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's how you know you're on the cutting edge. Yeah. When, I mean, the same thing with any TV show, yeah. you know, when things look older. <laughs> and I
1: mean, you, you know, you watch the shows now, and it's, it's the 70s, so it's a lot of bright orange, and it's a pea green refrigerator going up for bids. So, yeah. I mean, it looks ridiculous to us now, but this was very, very different and very, very groundbreaking stuff in the 1970s, and it did affect what game shows turned into.
0: Yeah, my grandma had a pea green refrigerator. (laughs) Uh, So so at this point, videotape is coming into play. Yeah. Now, how did that change everything?
1: Videotape kind of changed everything. Number one, you could show a good quality of the game shows and all other programming on every coast. The way that they had to do it before was you did your live broadcast on the East Coast, and the, the East Coast got a great feed of it because they were watching it straight from the broadcast. And then you watched, if you were watching on one of the other coasts, you had to watch a time-delayed broadcast from something called a kinescope, which was they had a, they had a camera fixed on a television tube, and you were essentially watching, if you watch YouTube now, they're called point-and-shoot videos. Mm. Essentially, that's what television looked like outside of the East Coast, for the most part, during the 1950s. You were watching somebody's point-and-shoot of a mm. show that already aired on the East Coast. And it was not very good quality. It was very, very flimsy. The audio was very muddy. And so videotape, mm. the big deal there was everybody got to watch a good quality copy of the show. And videotape, for the most part, was just used to, you know, to get the shows out there. And now, thankfully, a lot of them have been saved. But the tragedy was, for so many years, nobody expected game shows to have rerun value. And a lot of those game <laughs> shows did get erased. Uh, the bulk of TV game shows from before... I'd say nineteen eighty have been wiped out. Save for a handful of episodes here and there of different shows. Unless the producer had a lot of foresight, a lot of game shows gotten wiped out. No kidding. Yeah.
0: Now the eighties are kind of an interesting time for game shows. It was funny you mentioned um Pressure Luck because I was thinking Small Wonder was on at the same time (laughs) and Small Wonder is about a robot so it's the cutting edge of computer technology and Pressure Luck is not the cutting edge (laughs) but the 80s was when I kind of started watching game shows and some of my favorite game shows uh, were on Nickelodeon Mm -hmm. because that's about the age range I was in at that time yeah Double Dare, I think, is one of the greatest <laughs> game shows ever. Although it's funny, I watched a couple new episodes, and it doesn't like hold up. You know, <laughs> like like it felt good for as like a, a kid watching it. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh my god, this is the greatest show ever but double dare like doesn't hold up really yeah. do you want do, do you know anything about new game shows or is this uh... well
1: uh, b- before i answer that i just want to say i hope history records that you're the only person to ever say small wonder and cutting edge in the same sentence
0: ever <laughs> Dude, that's a, now that is a great show yeah. small wonder
1: <laughs> and they had a game show themed episode so it's it's okay in my book is that
0: um, no hold yeah. on then no, we got to go let's explore that a little bit they did
1: <laughs> they they did do a game show episode with uh, jeff edwards who was the host of play the percentages and jackpot and treasure hunt and a few few other shows Um, I can't tell you much more than that because I don't it's been a while since I've seen the episode but uh, yes any show that did a a game show themed episode is an okay sitcom in my book
0: well I'm going to look for the game (laughs) show episode so hopefully I can get this up before this show airs but uh, small wonder game show episode yeah so let's talk Nickelodeon game shows.
1: yeah the Nickelodeon game shows it is kind of interesting talking about that because it's it is a little difficult sometimes to watch an adult a kids game show with an adult side, just because you have to remind yourself they're targeting this towards kids. The contestants are kids. The only thing that really makes me shudder when I watch a kids game show from the eighties now is, again, we're adults, which means we have knowledge that we didn't have when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. And you want to ring some of these kids' necks for the answer <laughs> that they give. There was another game show on Nickelodeon called Make the Grade, and I have an episode of it on uh, my hard drive back at the apartment where the question is, what type of beverage was prohibited during Prohibition in the 1920s? The contestant (laughs) rings in and says (laughs) Coca-Cola. And you want to reach through the screen and smack her. (laughs) Uh, It's, you know, so there's that. It is a little frustrating. On the one hand, it is also rather amusing when the contestants get tripped up by trick questions. That's something that I... I forgot about Double Dare, and then watching it as an adult, I forgot they used to do this to the contestants. They would ask questions on Double Dare like, how many noses does Michael Jackson currently have? <laughs> yeah. And you would see the contestants just, what? And yeah. actually, like, debate about it with each other and try to figure out what the answer was. And it's, one, <laughs> he has one nose currently. It's calm down. Whether it's um, removable or not, it's yeah, irrelevant. It's <laughs>
0: What uh, was what I love about this show? Because for those, let's. I'm going to explain it really quickly. What it was is it, it, there were two teams, two kids on each side, and they'd ask questions. They didn't know the answer. You could dare for double the money, double their back for for, for four times four, the four times the amount. And
1: Then you either have to answer that question or, or take the physical, physical challenge.
0: challenge. And what was great about that is they always said physical challenge at the same time. And what what you had to do was like some goofy little thing. Like yeah. the classic example was one person wears you know a, a bowl on top of their head with, with a, a, a needle in it and someone else is throwing balloons yeah. filled with orange juice or slime. Slime was really big. <laughs> you know. Whipped cream was really big. Whatever made you messy, that was the whole point of the show. Right. Uh, and then you did that for a while. The winner... Of uh, the, the team that won got to have an attempt to run the obstacle course, which was incredible. It was eight different obstacles, mm. all crazy, usually messy. You had to catch a flag, hand it to your partner, and you'd win prizes. Yeah. And it was very old school in that, as I was re- researching the show, they had an announcer. You don't have announcers on game shows anymore, and yeah. that one they did, you know? That, very is, 50s. that is
1: very, very strange that that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, the announcer position is kind of going away. And it's a shame because if you have a good announcer, you can come up with some really good stuff with him. There was... Double Dare. The announcer was Harvey, and they would work him into all sorts of things. Like they yeah. would have one of the obstacles that they had every now and then was one called Wrestle Rama, and it was it, it was a large statue of a wrestler holding a flag, and you had to climb the statue and grab the flag. And sometimes they'd have Harvey in there wearing a wrestler costume and you know acting like the opponent. I did uh, not know that. The it's other news to me. the other thing they did, and this was the most common thing that's kind of gone away, is if you had a good announcer and a good host, you wound up with a Johnny Carson Ed McMahon kind of mm. relationship between mm. them where they would just interact with each other, the, the announcer would sort of say things the host would bounce off of and get good shtick out of them. And it was almost like having two hosts if the announcer was good enough. So that's kind of going away, and it's one of the things that's taken some of the charm out of game shows and making them seem more prepackaged now is you don't have that warm off the wall, you know, friendly relationship between on-air personalities anymore. It really is just, you know, the host is out there and that's all you got.
0: Well, the host is really important, and I noticed that on a couple game shows because there's another one called Finders Keepers on Nickelodeon. And the host was kind of terrible. And as I watched <laughs> it, I, I got to tell you, man, I loved Finders Keepers as yeah. a kid. And then I rewatched it. And I was like, man, this is such a poorly conceived show. Couple of reasons. Number one, the idea of the show is on the first, the first part is there's a, a, a picture, all kinds of hidden objects. You have to go and take like a piece of plastic and put it onto the picture to get your points. But you have to race over there, and you only have five seconds, and yeah. you have to move. The thing was timing was really weird on that show. So people, I remember people would put it and it didn't stick, and they didn't get it to stick in time, and they'd be like, i oh, sorry, kid, you got you know, no money. <laughs> and then then when you for every correct answer you got, you got to search a room yeah. for a prize. And that was like the goals. You get to trash a room and look for something. And they'd give you. They never said like, "Hey, you're looking for a pair of goggles." They'd say like, "You know, this is what you know, Amelia Earhart wore on her head," or something yeah. like that. Then you had to find the goggles and say like, "Oh, is this it?" And yeah. you only had one. I think you, you only had one. You had one, one shot. guess attitude. So yeah. You
1: picked up the wrong thing in the room and said, "Is this it?" You didn't get the money. Yeah. The other point that I want to make. You were just yeah. talking about when they would stick the uh, the plastic pieces on the uh, pictures. Yeah. If you were if you were a short kid, that kind of took the fun out of that part of the game because Not for the viewer. The the embarrassing that would have thing that would happen was they were looking for a hidden picture that was really high up on this piece of artwork. They'd grab their plastic piece and try to highlight it and you'd see the kid like struggle and jump and try to <laughs> slap it against the thing three or four times. Yeah. And the host would be forced to step in and say, Okay, that's close enough. You're looking for this thing up here. That's enough. Y- You're yeah. good. And, <laughs> and, you know, that takes some of the Challenge out of it. One one team has to be on the nose, and the other one is okay. That's good enough. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: and the thing that killed me about that show is at the end you got to do eight. You had eight, just similar to Doubler. You had eight yeah. rooms you had to search. They would go. The rooms were all zigzagged across yeah. the house, and you had a and you. It was time so you had a minute and a half to do all eight rooms, and you'd have to zigzag across the house, and then they'd stop in the room and tell you, and they'd read some stupid nursery rhyme, <laughs> and you're like, dude, this is fifteen seconds yeah. off, you know. And it was just a poor construction for the kids. I always felt bad for them. Yeah.
1: No if you if you do get a chance to watch Finders Keepers on YouTube do this and You were talking about zigzagging through the rooms. Even when I was a kid, one of the things that made me want to rip my hair out and one of the things I didn't get is why they had (laughs) to go from this room upstairs to this room downstairs and from this room. And I I used to think, you know, why not just go to the four rooms in in a row and then go to four rooms in a row downstairs? And then, you know, I got older and I realized how game show budgets work. And, oh, my God, they're trying to keep these kids from winning. Right. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah,
0: I mean, because you had to race. It was upstairs and downstairs. And then across, there was like a a divide in between the four rooms. And, yeah, that kills a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It just drove me bananas. <laughs> but that was like, I loved those types of game shows. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the points you made about hosts, it's really interesting how they have kind of worked out the announcer in that, you know, you have a show like Family Feud, for example, mm-hmm. which is extremely host-based. Yeah. And that show has survived, you know, I mean, eight, nine different hosts. Yeah. And I've always wondered, like, what does it take to make a host? You know, like, if you were to put together a host, what do you think are the essential qualities, if it's just a host, like, on a show like Family Feud, to do it?
1: If it's just a host, the first thing that you need to get is that you are not the star of the show. They might say, here is the star of the show, but you're not the star of the show. Um, It is the game that the people are coming in to see, and... You just made the point that the Family Feud has been through a bunch of different hosts over the years, and that's kind of proof of it. A lot of them brought different things to the table. A lot of them brought different skills, and a lot of them brought their own charms. But it's the game that's bringing people back to Family Feud after all these years. Uh, So you do need to put your ego aside and let the game be the star of the show and realize that is why people are coming in. Uh, The other thing is the understanding that you are on stage with people who are totally out of their element, who have never been on television before, who have perhaps just walked on stage and realized, oh my God, what am I doing? Mm. And having to kind of hold their hand through the next 30 minutes. There was a uh, quiz show host in the 1940s on radio named Bud Collier. He was the original voice of Superman when he wasn't hosting quiz shows, actually. Mm. And Bud Collier said he got a great piece of advice. And this was even very early in the history of game shows. Somebody had figured this out, and it it was a producer who gave him this advice about quiz shows. Right before he walked on stage for his first quiz show, he said this producer said, okay, now remember, you're going to be here tomorrow. That person isn't. Mm. And he said that was very handy advice and very, very helpful to remember. You're here for somebody else's day in the sun. You're here to make this person look really important, look really special. It's the only time in their lives they are ever going to be on the radio or they're the only time they will ever be on television. And it's your job to kind of make it a special occasion for them and make it important for them and make it fun for them. Yeah, that makes, that makes a yeah. lot of sense. So you are there. You're not the star of the show. You're there to help the stars of the show, basically. You are essentially second fiddle. You are not the most important cog in the machine. Uh, if you are able to bring something extra, absolutely, that's a wonderful thing. Gene Rayburn, who has to do Match Game, is a good example of that. Match Game would not have been the same show without him because he brought extra talents to it. Uh, but for the most part, you are just there to help steer this game along and help the contestants along. And... The most important thing a host needs to understand is that you're not the star of the show. And you've got to find somebody who has their ego in check enough that they're willing to do that. There was a good story from a producer named Iris Scutch, who was the producer of the match game that I just mentioned. And he talked about getting into a pay negotiation with one of the hosts. And there was a host, I never named him, who was really, really adamant about demanding a raise because look at how important I am to the show. And he's. Iris sat him down with a tape of one of the episodes that he had just hosted with a stopwatch. And at the end of the show, he showed him with the stopwatch. You were on camera for two and a half minutes out of that half
0: hour. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing you could do is fire him, get someone else, and show him how I want to Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I want to get to this something really quick. We're running short on time. Two okay. things I wanted to hit. Yeah. Number one, another favorite genre of game sh- Game shows have a lot of genres. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites were the relationship-based ones. So you have, like, the newlywed game. Then you have, you know, shows like uh, Love Connection. Yeah. You know, where, where the where the point of the show is to, your prize is a female or a male, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Which is a weird concept, yeah. in a way. Well, I guess, because no matter what, you're going to get someone. It's right. just a matter of if you get the prize or you get the dud, like yeah. in the, you know, <laughs> the prom night, the game. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how those became popular and why.
1: Those became popular. The funny thing was... It was this weird apparition where there was one that was very popular in the 1940s and then it went away and people forgot about them and then suddenly Chuck Barris brought them back. But there was a show in the 1940s called Blind Date which was almost completely the same thing. They had a woman on stage and three men who were trying to impress her and every now and then <laughs> yeah. they would mix things up by bringing out the, the woman's father and these three men would come on stage and try to impress her father And the father would pick a a, date or something like that. That's a great idea. Yeah. It it was a great premise for a show. And your trivia fun fact, it had the first female game show host in the history of the genre, Arlene Francis. Uh, But Blind Date was on the air and very popular for a while. And then it went away. And then Chuck Barris in 1965 proposed almost entirely the same premise to ABC and got it on the air as The Dating Game. And that Uh was a hit. So he brought along another show called The Newlywed Game, which was... Uh, You know, newlywed couples trying to predict what their spouses had said and getting into arguments about, you you know, that's not what color curtains we have in the living room or whatever. (laughs) I think the appeal of the relationship game shows (laughs) is just finding out that there are other people like you. What's interesting about the dating game is you do have these really awkward, nervous contestants trying to put their best foot forward and saying the stupidest, most embarrassing things. And at home, there is that voyeuristic pleasure to it. But there's also the pleasure of realizing, okay, it's not just me. There are other people who have this much trouble talking to a woman. Um, (laughs) And it it is interesting for that reason. The same thing goes for the newlywed game. Bob Eubanks uh, got all kinds of letters over the years saying that he got – that there were women at home who would write down the questions that had been asked on the newlywed game that day, and when their husbands came home from work, they would just ask them the questions just to see how the husbands responded. Jesus. it is just interesting to find out that there are other people like you, and that's what the relationship game shows bring out, is there are spouses that have arguments like the ones you have. There are couples that get into the same problems that you have. There are bad dates just like the ones that you've been on.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's fun to see people argue, but those—the those, those uh, the, the couples argue, is always cracks yeah. me up. You know, what those shows did, what was great about them is they had some weird historic moments— uh, because I think on the dating game, that's the one with Chuck Willery two and two, right?
1: Uh, the dating game was uh, Jim Lang with the uh, the kiss at the end and the oh. Chuck love, connection, was love, love connection, love
0: connection. Yeah, so I think Steve Martin was on there three times. Yeah, and the, got dating picked game, three times. the dating
1: game had this weird, weird history of people who weren't famous yet getting on the show, and for for some reason, the dating game wound up being a stairway to the stars. I don't know why, but just offhand, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Farrah Fawcett, Michael Jackson, um, Steve Martin. Andy Kaufman, Pee Wee Herman. Um, wow. And just, yeah, and just all these people who went on to become somebody. Mark Harmon was a contestant on the show, and not only a contestant on the show, but the date that he wound up picking was Colleen Camp, who played Yvette the maid in uh, Clue, <laughs> the movie. So, Holy cow. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, it was just a really weird show for that reason, and a weird footnote in history was anybody who went on to become somebody for some reason got their start as a contestant on the dating game.
0: That's incredible. And there was one in the Newlywed game. I remember there's this one—I don't know why I know this. It was like one really famous clip that I hear all the time. <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say?
1: Yeah. Let's um, see if
0: you, you tell me first. Let's see, I'm going to see if you can guess it.
1: Yeah. Uh, the famous story and what's— What's kind of added a layer of luster to it was, for years and years, game shows didn't really air reruns. So this thing aired once in 1977, and then never came back, and never popped up in any other way. And for years and years, it became an urban legend, and people would ask Bob Eubanks about it all the time, and Bob Eubanks would tell them, no, that didn't actually happen, because he didn't remember this. And then an NBC primetime special was coming up, a blooper special, and somebody called Bob Eubanks and said, "Uh, we found the clip.
0: And Bob Eubanks, he
1: almost didn't do it because for years and years in interviews and in public appearances, he had been telling people, no, it didn't happen. That's just a myth. And by golly, there it was on this tape. And Bob said he almost didn't do the special because he was so embarrassed that he had been telling people the wrong thing for 20 years. (laughs) But what happened was the contestants were asked, where is the strangest place that you and your spouse have ever gotten the urge to make Whoopi? Whoopie, yes, lo- that was my favorite. Whoopee. I love making whoopie. That was the standard practices approved word for sexual intercourse. You couldn't say sex on the air at that, at that time. You were allowed to say making whoopie, but it's. Oh, let me compose myself. So Where is the strangest place you've ever gotten the urge to make whoopie? And the contestant, the, the woman makes kind of a face and she giggles a little bit and she says, "In the ass." And they beeped they beep the <laughs> yeah, the that. Yeah, they they believe that. Bob, you. Bob Eubanks, all, all he could do at that point was he sh- he shakes his head and says, no, 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 place, place. Where's the strangest place that you've ever gotten here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That is so Because that's like the classic story yeah. from that show. <laughs> it's so funny What's to What's great
1: is uh, since that time, I've had the chance to work with Bob Eubanks. He has a traveling game show exhibition that he does called America's Greatest Game Shows. And I worked with him briefly on it. And I was there in person. One of the things that he does... All the games are similar to classic TV game shows, and he pulls mm. people out of the audience to play them. And one of the things that he does is he pulls three married couples out of the audience, and they play the newlywed game. And he asks that question as part of every playing of it. And this is Bob Eubanks' own words. He says, It's amazing what people are willing to reveal if they think they'll win a refrigerator for it. <laughs> if you ask if you ask a person something on the and if you ask a person a question like this on the bus, that's none of your business and you'll probably get slapped. <laughs> Offer them a t shirt, a commemorative Bob Eubanks America's Greatest Game Shoes t shirt, and they will tell you anything and everything. But he <laughs> It's a funny world. The wives it. went off stage and the uh, contestants, uh, the male contestants are remaining, and Bob asks, Where's the strangest place that you and your spouse have ever made whoopee?" And one of the contestants thinks about it and he says, the backseat of a car. And (laughs) they bring out uh, the wives again and they ask his wife, where's the strangest place that you and your husband have ever made whoopee? and this woman says on the coffee table in my aunt's house and the husband <laughs> the husband makes this face and points to their son who is sitting in the audience and says oh crap i forgot that's how we got him
0: <laughs> oh, holy that happened <laughs> yeah that happened
1: that happened <laughs> no, no videotape of that one because it was part of his live performance but you're speaking to a witness i watched Ooh. this exchange happen
0: <laughs> wow oh my god like talk about therapy man like i hope they won enough money to put it away yeah. oh my god that poor kid <laughs> holy cow well let's so we're running out of time I want to talk to a couple other things really quickly alright uh, game shows made out of board games so Monopoly is probably the classic example yeah uh, are there any others I remember there, watching the Monopoly game show which there is was a
1: game show in the 1980s and this always bewilders people they made a game show out of Scrabble and the funny thing is if you hmm. watch it it plays nothing like Scrabble it's played on the board they have a computer generated game board oh my god right Yeah. and it's, it really plays nothing like Scrabble just because as much fun as Scrabble is to play Would you really sit through half an hour of that on a day if it was on TV? But basically what it was, was it was Hangman with with, uh, Scrabble trappings. Uh, And it was a very popular show for uh, NBC, 1984 to 1990 on NBC. And it holds the weird distinction of being adapted into a board game. So you had a board game that was based on a game show that was based on a board game. And they had to call the board game TV Scrabble, just to get the point across to the American consuming public that, no, 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 this isn't quite Scrabble. It's Um, different. Yeah. Uh, but a very interesting game and a very engaging one one of the ones in the 1960s that was not actually based on a board game but they actually made a board game game show video village which was a giant board game that spanned the entire length of the studio and the contestants were pawns and you had a giant die in a cage and you turned the cage and you walked along the spaces and the idea was to cross the three streets of video village one space at a time and there were spaces where you could win money, you could go to jail, you could wind up in the doghouse, um, and there were keys to businesses. Like, the, the, the final street was called Magic Mile, and there was a bank, and there was a jewelry store, and you could win the key to the bank and the key to the jewelry store, and that's how you got your prizes.
0: Well, so you robbed the jewelry store and yeah. you robbed the bank? Yeah.
1: <laughs> but the show was called Video Village, and the funny thing, living out in Los Angeles now, when I meet people in the movie industry, they are so fascinated to learn that Video Village was actually the name of a game show... Because I guess now Video Village is a name for the area on a movie set where they go back and they review they review the footage that they filmed that day.
0: Well, yes and no. Like on a TV show, it's the, it's the area where they have monitors, so it's where okay. everyone who's not supposed to be on the floor hangs out and watches what's okay. being filmed. But that's commonly referred to as Video Village, so yeah. I had the same reaction when I heard that. I was like, that's a weird board game, <laughs> video game, TV yeah. show, whatever. Um, well, so let's let's plug some stuff, Adam. You're not okay. here just to entertain me. So <laughs> I'm you not. have you have an incredible company. You and and a lot of your friends this incredible company that basically you guys go places and you set up game shows like classic game shows for people to participate in like yes, a party thing.
1: We are available for rent. The name of our group is Home Game Enterprises, and it's a pun. It's Enterprises with a Z, like prizes you win on game shows. Home Game Enterprises. And what we do is uh, for a nice little fee, we will come to your house, we will come to your private party, we will come to your corporate function, we'll come to your wedding, we'll come to your funeral if you didn't like the person that much, <laughs> and we will stage live game shows for you. We've uh, we've done bar mitzvahs, we've done birthday parties, we did our first wedding back in May, which was a fascinating experience, uh, but it's really a neat little business and it's It's kind of out there, but what's funny is how quickly people get drawn into it once they realize what we're doing. And I think what a lot of people come to realize, and this is kind of the point that I've made when I've been plugging my books, is that people love game shows a lot more than they think they do. They find out there's a group of guys setting up live game shows, and the instant reaction, I think, sometimes is, Oh, that sounds neat. And then you actually see what we've set up. We've set up a wheel. We've set up the survey board. We've set up everything... We've set up the lights. We've got everything flashing. We've got the buzzers. We've got uh, our buttons. We've got the bells. And once they see all that stuff and we see what we've actually brought, all of a sudden we have a crowd around us, and everybody wants to play what we've got. And it's just the most amazing thing, watching people get sucked into this and actually wanting to play. Well, there's a game show for everyone. That's the thing. There really is, yeah. And everyone gets excited about it. Yeah, everybody does get excited about it. And, you know, there are game shows that have hit upon you know sort of universal uh that sort of have universal appeal Wheel of Fortune uh, sucks people in a lot. Uh, Family Feud gets a lot of people's attention. Family Feud is a great game show to do at a party just because there are multiple answers to every question. It's the best. And talking to a producer who worked on Family Feud, he said, if you can come up with a game show that has lists of answers, you've got a hit because everybody in America can give two answers at the very least. Mm -hmm. So you can always give a right answer to every question. So Family Feud always gets a good crowd. Press your luck. Big bucks, no whammies. People love it when we play that. And when it gets later in the evening, and if it's um, a more colorful group of folks and they've been drinking, Match Game gets a good reaction, too. (laughs) So, I mean, whatever game shows you can ask for, if we don't have it, we'll make it. We make our own props. We make our own software. We build the game boards. And we're able to do whatever game shows you want. And we even have our own original ideas if you want to do that, too. And we stage our own live game shows. and. Uh, it's incredible, do man. whatever we can for you. No, you
0: guys do a great job. What's yeah. the website for that?
1: It's Home Game Enterprises, again with a Z, homegameenterprises.com.
0: Uh, and you have some books, too, as well.
1: Yeah, uh, Quizmaster, The Life and Times and Fun and Games of Bill Cullen is currently available in paperback. It's also available for the Nook or the Kindle if you go to Barnes and & Noble, Noble and Amazon. Uh, I've also got a set of uh, four books called This Day in Game Show History, Volumes 1 through 4. That's currently available in paperback as we're recording this. In the next few weeks, it will be out for the Nook and the Kindle also.
0: This Day in Game Show History. I'm going to have yeah. links to all this stuff on, on the website as well. Terrific. Do you have a personal website? You have. You look like a Twitter guy. <laughs> I, I said that to everyone. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I have
1: a personal website, Game Show Utopia, game-show-utopia.net. Uh, And it's just my little game show fan page. For all the professional stuff that I'm doing, I still just have this little fanboy page with screen caps and with little (laughs) typings about uh, the things that I like about game shows. Uh, So... I've got that site out there, too, if you just want to come in and get a glimpse into my brain and see how much I like game shows.
0: (laughs) I think we all want that. (laughs) Uh, Let's take a look inside his brain, gameshowutopia.net. Adam, thank you so much for being here, man. This has been eye-opening. We didn't even get to Bill Cullen, and I'm telling you guys, you got to read this book. It is (laughs) really fascinating. I mean it. Uh, All right, thank you, Adam. Thank you. Uh, And thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night.